Section seven of the Sunny Side by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five, part two. Enter Bingo. Before I introduce Bingo, I must say a word for Humphrey, his sparring partner. Humphrey found himself on the top of my stocking last December, put there, I fancy, by Celia, though she says it was Father Christmas. He is a small yellow dog with glass optics, and the label round his neck said, His eyes move. When I had finished the oranges and sweets and nuts, when Celia and I had pulled the crackers, Humphrey remained over to sit on the music-stool, with the air of one playing the pianola. In this position he found his uses. There are times when a husband may legitimately be annoyed. At these times it was pleasant to kick Humphrey off his stool onto the divan, to stand on the divan and kick him onto the sofa, to stand on the sofa and kick him onto the bookcase, and then, feeling another man, to replace him on the music-stool and apologize to Celia. It was thus that he lost his tail. Here we say good-bye to Humphrey for the present. Bingo claims our attention. Bingo arrived as an absurd little black tub of puppiness, warranted by a pedigree as long as your arm, to grow into a Pekingese. It was Celia's idea to call him Bingo, because, a ridiculous reason, as a child she had had a poodle called Bingo, the less said about poodles the better why rake up the past if there is the slightest chance of bingo of this animal growing up into a poodle i said he leaves my house at once my poodle was a lovely dog said celia of course she was only a child then she wouldn't know the point is this i said firmly our puppy is meant for a pekingese the pedigree says so from the look of him, it will be touch-and-go whether he pulls it off. To call him by the name of a late poodle may be just the deciding factor. Now, I hate poodles. I hate pet dogs. A Pekingese is not a pet dog. He is an undersized lion. Our puppy may grow into a small lion, or a mastiff, or anything like that, but I will not have him a poodle. If we call him Bingo, will you promise never to mention in his presence that you once had a, a, you know what I mean, called Bingo? She promised. I have forgiven her for having once loved a poodle. I beg you to forget about it. There is now only one Bingo, and he is a Pekingese puppy. However, after we had decided to call him Bingo, a difficulty arose. Bingo's pedigree is full of names like Li Hung Chang and Sun Yat Sen. Had we chosen a sufficiently Chinese name for him, apart from what was due to his ancestors, were we encouraging him enough to grow into a Pekingese? What was there Oriental about Bingo? In itself, apparently little. And Bingo himself must have felt this, for his tail continued to be nothing but a rat's tail and his body to be nothing but a fat tub, and his head almost the head of any little puppy in the world. He felt it deeply. When I ragged him about it, he tried to eat my ankles. I had only to go into the room in which he was, and murmur rat's tail to myself, 
or, more offensive still, chewed string, for him to rush at me. Where, oh, bingo, is that delicate feather curling gracefully over the back, which was the pride and glory of thy grandfather? Is the caudal affix of the rodent thy apology for it? And bingo would whimper with shame. Then we began to look him up in the map. I found a Chinese town called Ningpo, which strikes me as very much like bingo, and Celia found another called Young Bing, which might just as well be Young Bing, the obvious name of Bingo's heir, when he has one. These facts being communicated to Bingo, his nose immediately began to go back a little, and his tub to develop something of a waste. But what finally decided him was a discovery of mine made only yesterday. There is a Japanese province called Bingo. Japanese, not Chinese, it is true, but at least it is Oriental. In any case, conceive one's pride in realizing suddenly that one has been called after a province and not after a poodle. It has determined Bingo unalterably to grow up in the right way. You have Bingo now, definitely a Pekingese. That being so, I may refer to his ancestors, always an object of veneration among these Easterns. I speak of, hats off please, Ch, Goodwood, Low. Of course, you know, I didn't myself till last week, that Ch stands for champion. On the male side, champion Goodwood Low is Bingo's great-great-grandfather. On the female side, the same animal is Bingo's great-grandfather. One couldn't be a poodle after that. A fortnight after Bingo came to us, we found in a Pekingese book a photograph of Goodwood Low. How proud we all were! Then we saw above it celebrities of the past, the late champion goodwood low was no more in one moment bingo had lost both his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather we broke it to him as gently as possible but the double shock was too much and he passed the evening in acute depression annoyed with my tactlessness in letting him know about it i kicked humphrey off his stool humphrey i forgot to say has a squeak if kicked in the right place. He squeaked. Bingo, at that time still uncertain of his destiny, had at least the courage of the lion. Just for a moment he hesitated. Then, with a pounce, he was upon Humphrey. Till then I had regarded Humphrey, save for his power of rolling the eyes and his habit of taking long jumps from the music stool to the bookcase, as rather a sedentary character, but in the fight which followed he put up an amazingly good resistance. At one time he was underneath Bingo, the next moment he had Bingo down, first one, then the other seemed to gain advantage, but blood willed hell. Humphrey's ancestry is unknown. I blush to say that it may possibly be German." Bingo had Goodwood Low to support him in two places. Gradually he got the upper hand, and at last, taking the reluctant Humphrey by the ear, he dragged him laboriously beneath the sofa. He emerged alone, with tail wagging, 
and was taken onto his mistress's lap. There he slept, his grief forgotten. So Humphrey was found a job. Whenever Bingo wants exercise, Humphrey plants himself in the middle of the room, his eyes cast upwards in an affectation of innocence. "'I'm just sitting here,' says Humphrey. "'I believe there's a fly on the ceiling. It is a challenge which no great-grandson of Goodwood Lowe could resist. With a rush, Bingo is at him. "'I'll learn you to stand in my way,' he splutters." and the great dust-up begins brave little bingo i don't wonder that so warlike a race as the japanese has called a province after him a warm half-hour whatever the papers say it was the hottest afternoon of the year at six-thirty i had just finished dressing after my third cold bath since lunch when celia tapped on the door "'I want you to do something for me,' she said. "'It's a shame to ask you on a day like this.' "'It is rather a shame,' I agreed. "'But I can always refuse.' "'Oh, but you mustn't. "'We haven't got any ice, and the Thompsons are coming to dinner. "'Do you think you could go and buy three pennyworth? "'Jane's busy, and I'm busy, and—' "'And I'm busy,' I said, opening and shutting a drawer with great rapidity. "'Just three pennyworth,' she pleaded. "'Nice, cool ice. Think of sliding home on it.' "'Well, of course, it had to be done. I took my hat and staggered out. On an ordinary cool day, it is about half a mile to the fishmonger. Today it was about two miles and a quarter. I arrived exhausted, and with only just strength enough to kneel down and press my forehead against the large block of ice in the middle of the shop, round which the lobsters nestled here you mustn't do that said the fishmonger waving me away i got up slightly refreshed i want i said some and then a thought occurred to me after all did fishmongers sell ice probably the large block in front of me was just a trade sign like the coloured bottles at the chemist's suppose i said to a fellow of the pharmaceutical society i want some of that green stuff in the window he would only laugh the tactful thing to do would be to buy a pint or two of laudanum first and then having established pleasant relations ask him as a friend to lend me his green bottle for a bit so i said to the fishmonger i want some some nice lobsters how many would you like one i said we selected a nice one between us and he wrapped a piece of daily mail round it leaving only the whiskers visible and gave it to me the ice being now broken i mean the ice being now well you see what i mean i was now in a position to ask for some of his ice i wonder if you could let me have a little piece of your ice i ventured how much ice do you want he said promptly six pennyworth i said feeling suddenly that celia's three pennyworth sounded rather paltry six of ice bill he shouted to an inferior at the back and bill tottered up with a block about the size of one of the lions in trafalgar square he wrapped a piece of daily news round it and gave it to me is that all asked the fishmonger that is all i said faintly and with algernon the over-whiskered crustacean 
firmly clutched in the right hand, and Stonehenge supported on the palm of the left hand, I retired. The flat seemed a long way away, but having bought twice as much ice as I wanted, and an entirely unnecessary lobster, I was not going to waste still more money in taxis. Hot though it was, I would walk. For some miles all went well. Then the ice began to drip through the paper, and in a little while the underneath part of the daily news had disappeared altogether. Tucking the lobster under my arm, I turned the block over so that it rested on another part of the paper. Soon that had dissolved too. By the time I had got halfway, our radical contemporary had been entirely eaten. Fortunately, the Daily Mail remained, but to get it, I had to disentangle Algernon first, and I had no hand available. There was only one thing to do. I put the block of ice down on the pavement, unwrapped the lobster, put the lobster next to the ice, spread its Daily Mail out, lifted the ice onto the paper, and looked up and saw Mrs. Thompson approaching. She was the last person I wanted at that moment. In an hour and a half she would be dining with us. Algernon would not be dining with us. If Algernon and Mrs. Thompson were to meet now, would she not be expecting him to turn up at every course? Think of the long, drawn-out disappointment for her. Not even lobster sauce. There was no time to lose. I decided to abandon the ice, leaving it on the pavement. I clutched the lobster and walked hastily back the way I had come. By the time I had shaken off Mrs. Thompson, I was almost at the fishmonger's. That decided me. I would begin all over again and would do it properly this time. I want three of ice, I said with an air. Three of ice, Bill, said the fishmonger and bill gave me quite a respectable segment in the morning post and i want a taxi i said and i waved my lobster at one we drove quickly home but as we neared the flat i suddenly became nervous about algernon i could not take him red and undraped past the hall porter past all the other residents who might spring out at me on the stairs accordingly i placed the block of ice on the seat took off some of its morning post, and wrapped Algernon up decently. Then I sprang out, gave the man a coin, and hastened into the building. "'Bless you,' said Celia. "'Have you got it? How sweet of you!' And she took my parcel from me. "'Now we shall be able—why, what's this?' I looked at it closely. "'It's—it's it's a lobster,' I said. "'Didn't you say lobster?' I said ice. Oh, I said. Oh, I didn't understand. I thought you said lobster. You can't put lobster in a cider cup, said Celia, severely. Of course I quite see that. It was foolish of me. However, it's pleasant to think that the taxi must have been nice and cool for the next man. Wrongly Attributed You've heard of Willie Ferrero, the boy conductor, a musical prodigy, seven years old, who will order the fifth oboe out of the Albert Hall as soon as look at him. Well, he has a rival. Willie, as perhaps you know, does not play any instrument himself. He only conducts. His rival, 
johnny as i think of him does not conduct as yet at least not audibly his line is the actual manipulation of the pianoforte the paderewski touch johnny lives in the flat below and i hear him touching on certain mornings in the week no need to specify them i enter my library and give myself up to literary composition on the same mornings little johnny enters his music-room underneath and gives himself up to musical composition thus we are at work together the worst of literary composition is this that when you have got hold of what you feel is a really powerful idea you find suddenly that you have been forestalled by some earlier writer sophocles or shakespeare or george r sims then you have to think again this frequently happens to me upstairs and downstairs poor johnny will find to his horror one day that his great work has already been given to the world by another a certain dr john bull johnny in fact is discovering god save the king with one finger as i dip my pen in the ink and begin to write johnny strikes up on the first day when this happened some three months ago i rose from my chair and stood stiffly through the entire performance an affair of some minutes owing to a little difficulty with the send him victorious line which always bothers johnny however he got right through it at last after harking back no more than twice and i sat down to my work again generally speaking god save the king ends a show it would be disloyal to play another tune after that johnny quite saw this and so began to play god save the king again i hope that his majesty the lord chamberlain the late dr bull or whoever is most concerned will sympathize with me when i say that this time i remain seated i have my living to earn from that day johnny has interpreted dr john bull's favorite composition nine times every morning as this has been going on for three months and as the line i mentioned has due special rehearsals to itself before coming out right you can easily work out how many send him victoriouses johnny and i have collaborated in about two thousand very well now you ask yourself why did i not send a polite note to johnny's father asking him to restrain his little boy from over-composition begging him not to force the child's musical genius too quickly imploring him in short to lock up the piano and lose the key what kept me from this course the answer is patriotism those deep feelings for his country which one man will express glibly by rising nine times during the morning at the sound of the national anthem another will direct to more solid uses it was my duty i felt not to discourage johnny he was showing qualities which could not fail when he grew up to be of value to the nation loyalty musical genius determination patience industry never before have these qualities been so finely united in a child of six was i to say a single word to disturb the delicate balance of such a boy's mind at six one is extraordinarily susceptible to outside influence a word from his father to the effect that the gentleman above was getting sick of it 
and Johnny's whole life might be altered. No, I would bear it grimly. And then, yesterday, who should write to me but Johnny's father himself? This was the letter. Dear sir, I do not wish to interfere unduly in the affairs of other occupants of these flats, but I feel bound to call your attention to the fact that, for many weeks now, there has been a flow of water from your bathroom, which has penetrated through the ceiling of my bathroom, particularly after you have been using the room in the morning. May I therefore beg you to be more careful in future not to splash or spill water on your floor, seeing that it causes inconvenience to the tenants beneath you. Yours faithfully, Jonathan MacAndrew. You can understand how I felt about this. For months I had been suffering Johnny in silence, yet at the first little drop of water from above, Johnny's father must break out in violent abuse of me. A fine reward. Well, Johnny's future could look after itself now. Anyhow, he was doomed with a selfish father like that. Dear sir, I answered defiantly, now that we are writing to each other, I wish to call your attention to the fact that for many months past there has been a constant flow of one-fingered music from your little boy, which penetrates through the floor of my library and makes all work impossible. May I beg you, therefore, to see that your child is taught a new tune immediately, seeing that the national anthem has lost its first freshness for the tenants above him. His reply to this came today. Dear sir, I have no child. Yours faithfully, Jonathan MacAndrew. I was so staggered that I could only think of one adequate retort. Dear sir, I wrote, I never have a bath. So that's the end of Johnny, my boy prodigy, for whom I have suffered so long. It is not Johnny, but Jonathan, who struggles with the national anthem. He will give up music now, for he knows I have the bulge on him. I can flood his bathroom whenever I like. Probably he will learn something quieter, like painting. Anyway, Dr. John Bull's masterpiece will rise no more through the ceiling. On referring to my encyclopedia, I see that, according to some authorities, God Save the King is wrongly attributed to Dr. Bull. Well, I wrongly attributed it to Johnny. It is easy to make these mistakes. A Hanging Garden in Babylon Are you taking me to the flower show this afternoon? asked Celia at breakfast. No, I said thoughtfully. No. Well, that's that. What other breakfast conversation have I? Have you been to any theatres lately? Do you really want to go to the flower show? I asked, because I don't believe I could bear it. I've saved up two shillings. It isn't that, not only that. But there will be thousands of people there, all with gardens of their own, all pointing to things and saying, We've got one of those in the east bed. Or, Wouldn't that look nice in the south orchid house? And you and I will be quite, quite out of it. I sighed and helped myself from the west toast rack. It is very delightful to have a flat in London, but there are times in the summer when I long for a garden of my own. I show people round our little place. 
and I point out, hopefully, the hot tap dultonii in the scullery, and the Dorothy Perkins doormat, but it isn't the same thing as taking your guest round your garden and telling him what you really want is rain. Until I can do that, the Chelsea Flower Show is no place for us. Then I haven't told you the good news, said Celia. We are gardeners. She paused a moment for effect. I have ordered a window box. I dropped the marmalade and jumped up eagerly. But this is glorious news. I haven't been so excited since I recognized a calceolaria last year and told my host it was a calceolaria just before he told me. A window box. What's in it? Pink geraniums and then pink geraniums and er pink geraniums i suggested yes they're very pretty you know i know but i could have wished for something more difficult if we had something like well i don't want to seem to harp on it but say calcularias then quite a lot of people might recognize them and i should be able to tell them what they were i should be able to show them the calcularias you can't show people geraniums you can say what do you think of that for a geranium said celia anyhow she added you've got to take me to the flower show now of course i will it is not only a pleasure but a duty as gardeners we must keep up with floricultural progress even though we start with pink geraniums now we may have er calceolarias next year rotation of crops and uh, what not accordingly we made our way in the afternoon to the show i think we're a little overdressed i said as we paid our shillings we ought to look as if we'd just run up from our little window box in the country and were going back by the last train i should be in gaiters really our little window box is not in the country objected celia it's what you might call a pied de terre in town french joke she added kindly much more difficult than the ordinary sort don't forget it we can always use it again on visitors now what shall we look at first the flowers first then the tea i had bought a catalogue and was scanning it rapidly we don't want flowers i said our window-box our garden is already full it may be that james the head boxer has overdone the pink geraniums this year but there it is we can sack him and promote thomas but the mischief is done luckily there are other things we want what about a dovecot i should like to see doves cooing round our geraniums aren't dovecots very big for a window-box we could get a small one for small doves do you have to buy the doves too or do they just come i never know or there i broke off suddenly my dear that's just the thing and i pointed with my stick we have seven clocks already said celia but a sundial how romantic particularly as only two of the clocks go celia if you'd let me have a sundial in my window-box i would meet you by it alone sometimes it sounds lovely she said doubtfully you do want to make this window-box a success don't you i asked as we wandered on well then help me to buy something for it 
I don't suggest one of those, and I pointed to a summer-house, or even a weathercock, but we must do something now we're here. For instance, what about one of those patent extension ladders, in case the geraniums grow very tall, and you want to climb up and smell them? Or would you rather have some mushroom spawn? I would get up early and pick the mushrooms for breakfast. What do you think? I think it's too hot for anything, and I must sit down. Is this seat an exhibit, or is it meant for sitting on? It's an exhibit, but we might easily want to buy one some day, when our window box gets bigger. Let's try it. It was so hot that I think if the man in charge of the rustic bench section had tried to move us on, we should have bought the seat at once. But nobody bothered us. Indeed, it was quite obvious that the news that we owned a large window-box had not yet got about. "'I shall leave you here,' I said, after I had smoked a cigarette and dipped into the catalogue again, "'and make my purchase. It will be quite inexpensive. Indeed, it is marked in the catalogue at one and sixpence, which means that they will probably offer me the nine-shilling version first, but I shall be firm.' Goodbye. I went, and bought one, and returned to her with it. No, not now, I said, as she held out her hand eagerly. Wait till we get home. It was cooler now, and we wandered through the tents, chatting patronizingly to the stall-keeper whenever we came to pink geraniums. At the orchids we were contemptuously sniffy. Of course, I said, for those who like orchids and led the way back to the geraniums again. It was an interesting afternoon. And to our great joy, the window-box was in position when we got home again. Now, I said dramatically, and I unwrapped my purchase and placed it in the middle of our new-made garden. Whatever a slug trap, I explained proudly. But how could slugs get up here? asked Celia in surprise. How do slugs get anywhere? They climb up the walls, or they come up in the lift, or they get blown about by the wind. I don't know. They can fly up if they like, but however it be, when they do come, I mean to be ready for them. Still, though our slug trap will no doubt come in usefully, it is not what we really want. What we gardeners really want is rain. Sisterly Assistance I was talking to a very stupid man the other day. He was the stupidest man I have come across for many years. It is a hard thing to say of any man, but he appeared to me to be entirely lacking in intellect. It was Celia who introduced me to him. She had rung up her brother at the flat where he was staying, and, finding that he was out, she gave a message for him to the porter. It was simply that he was to ring her up as soon as he came in. "'Ring up who?' said the porter. At least I suppose he did, for Celia repeated her name and mine very slowly and distinctly. "'Mrs. Who?' said the porter. "'What?' or "'I can't hear,' or something equally foolish. Celia then repeated our name again. There followed a long conversation between the two of them, 
the audible part of it that is celia's consisting of my name given forth in a variety of intonations in the manner of one who sings an anthem hopefully pathetically dramatically despairingly up to this moment i had been rather attached to my name true it wants a little explaining to shopkeepers there are certain consonants in it which require to be elided or swallowed or swivelled round the glottis in order to give the name its proper due but after five or six applications the shopkeeper grasps one's meaning well as i say i was attached to my name but after listening to celia for five minutes i realized that there had been some horrible mistake people weren't called that just wait a moment i said to her rather anxiously and picked up the telephone book to my great relief i found that celia was right there was a person of that name living at my address you are quite right i said go on i wish i had married somebody called jones said celia looking at me rather reproachfully no no not jones she added hastily down the telephone and once more she repeated the unhappy name it isn't my fault i protested you did have a choice i had none try spelling it it spells all right celia tried spelling it i'm going to spell it she announced very distinctly down the telephone are you ready m no m m for mother that gave me an idea come away i said seizing the telephone leave it to me now then i called to the porter never mind about the name just tell him to ring up his sister and i looked at celia triumphantly ask him to ring up his mother said the porter very well sir no not the mother that was something else forget all about that mother he's to ring up his sister 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 you'll have to spell it said celia i'm going to spell it i shouted are you ready s for for sister now you're going to muddle him s for sister have you got that no sister idiot i for idiot i added quickly s for sister this is another sister of course t for two got that no two 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 anything two more sisters if you like e for e for i turned helplessly to celia quick a word that begins with e i've got him moving now e for quick before his tympanum runs down er er desperately she tried to think e for er i shouted that'll be another sister i expect celia i believe we ought to spell it with an h can't you think of a better word any said celia having quite lost her nerve by this time e for any i shouted any anything any of the sisters i've been telling you about r for quick celia rose she said hastily r for rose i shouted rose the flower or the sister if you like there you are that's the whole word now then i'll just spell it to you over again celia i want another word for e that last one was bad edith good i took a deep breath and began s for sister i for isabel isabel is the name of the sister 
S for another sister. I'll tell you her name directly. T for two sisters. These two that we're talking about now. E for Edith. That's the second sister whose name I was going to tell you. R for Rose. Perhaps I ought to explain Rose. She was the sister whom these two sisters were sisters of. Got that? I turned to Celia. I'm going to get the sister idea into his head if I die for it. Just a moment, sir, said the dazed voice of the porter. What's the matter? Didn't I make it clear about Rose? She was the sister whom the... Just hold the line a moment, sir, implored the porter. Here's the gentleman himself coming in. I handed the phone to Celia. Here he is, I said. But I was quite sorry to go, for I was getting interested in those sisters. Rose, I think, will always be my favorite. Her life, though short, was full of incident, and there were many things about her which I could have told that porter, but perhaps he would not have appreciated them. It is a hard thing to say of any man, but he appeared to me to be entirely lacking in intellect. THE OBVIOUS Celia had been calling on a newly married friend of hers. They had been schoolgirls together. They had looked over the same algebra book, or whatever it was that Celia learnt at school. I have never been quite certain. They had done their calisthenics side by side. They had compared picture postcards of Lewis Waller. Ah, me, the fairy princes they had imagined together in those days. And here am I, and somewhere in the city... I believe he is a stockbroker, is Ermintrude's husband. And we played our golf on Saturday afternoons, and go to sleep after dinner, and, well, anyhow, they were both married and Celia had been calling on Ermintrude. I hope you did all the right things, I said, asked to see the wedding ring and admired the charming little house, and gave a few hints on the proper way to manage a husband. "'Rather,' said Celia, "'but it did seem funny, "'because she used to be older than me at school. "'Isn't she still?' "'Oh, no, I'm ever so much older now. "'Talking about wedding rings,' she went on, "'as she twisted her own round and round, "'she's got all sorts of things written inside hers. "'The date and their initials, and I don't know what else.' There can't be much else, unless perhaps she has a very large finger. Well, I haven't got anything in mine, said Celia mournfully. She took off the offended ring and gave it to me. On the day when I first put the ring on her finger, Celia swore an oath that nothing but death, extreme poverty, or brigands should ever remove it. I swore too. Unfortunately, it fell off in the course of the afternoon, which seemed to break the spell somehow. So now it goes off and on, just like any other ring. I took it from her and looked inside. There are all sorts of things here, too, I said. Really, you don't seem to have read your wedding ring at all. Or, anyhow, you've been skipping. There's nothing, said Celia, in the same mournful voice. I do think you might have put something. I went and sat on the arm of her chair and held the ring up. "'You're an ungrateful wife,' I said, "'after all the trouble I took. "'Now look there,' and I pointed with a pencil. "'What's the first thing you see?' 
twenty-two. That's only the... That was your age when you married me. I had it put in at enormous expense. If you had been eighteen, the man said, or nine, it would have come much cheaper. But no, I would have your exact age. You were twenty-two, and that's what I had engraved on it. Very well. Now what do you see next to it? A crown? Yes. And what does that mean? In the language of, er, crowns, it means you are my queen. I insisted on a crown. It would have been cheaper to have had a lion, which means, er, lions. But I was determined not to spare myself, for I thought, I went on pathetically, I quite thought you would like a crown. Oh, I do, cried Celia quickly, if it really means that. She took the ring in her hands and looked at it lovingly. And what's that there for? Sort of a man's head? I gazed at her sadly. You don't recognize it? Has a year of marriage so greatly changed me? Celia, it is your Ronald. I sat for that, hour after hour, day after day. For your sake, Celia, it is not a perfect likeness. In the small space allotted to him, the sculptor has hardly done me justice. And there, I added, is his initial, R. Oh, woman, the amount of thought I spent on that ring. She came a little closer and slipped the ring on my finger. Spend a little more, she pleaded. There's plenty of room. Just have something nice written in it. Something about you and me. Like Pisgah? What does that mean? I don't know. Perhaps it's Mizpah, or Ichabod, or Habakkuk. I'm sure there's a word you put in rings. I expect they'll know at the shop. But I don't want what they know at shops. It must be something quite private and special. But the shop has got to know all about it when I tell them. And I don't like telling strange men in shops private and special things about ourselves. I love you, Celia, but that would be a lovely thing, she said, clasping her hands eagerly. What? I love you, Celia. I looked at her aghast. Do you want me to order that in cold blood from the shopman? He wouldn't mind. Besides, if he saw us together, he'd probably know. You aren't afraid of a goldsmith, are you? I'm not afraid of any goldsmith living, or goldfish either, if it comes to that, but I should prefer to be sentimental in some other language than plain English. I could order catasposa, or spaghetti, or anything you like without a tremor, but of course you shall put just what you like, only... Only let it be original, not Mizpah's. Right, I said. For three days I wandered past gold and silversmiths with the ring in my pocket, and for three days Celia went about without a wedding ring, and, for all I know, without even her marriage lines in her muff. And on the fourth day I walked boldly in. I want, I said, a wedding ring engraved. And I felt in my pockets. Not initials, I said, and I felt in some more pockets, but, but, I tried the trouser pockets again. Well, look here, I'll be quite frank with you. I, er, want, I fumbled in my ticket pocket, I want, I love you on it. And I went through the waistcoat pockets a third time. I, er, love you. Me? said the shopman in surprise. I love you, 
I repeated mechanically. I love you. I love you. I... Well, look here, perhaps I'd better go back and get the ring. On the next day, I was there again, but there was a different man behind the counter. I want this ring engraved, I said. Certainly. What shall we put in it? I had felt the question coming. I had a sort of instinct that he would ask me that, but I couldn't get the words out again. Well, I hesitated. I, er, well, ladies often like the date put in. When is it to be? When is what to be? The wedding, he smiled. It has been, I said. It is all over. You're too late for it. I gave myself up to thought. At all costs, I must be original. There must be something on Celia's wedding ring that had never been in any others. There was only one thing I could think of. The engraved ring arrived as we were at tea a few days later and I had a sudden overwhelming fear that Celia would not be pleased. I saw that I must explain it to her. After all, there was a distinguished precedent. "'Come into the bathroom a moment,' I said, and I led the way. She followed, wondering. "'What is that?' I asked, pointing to a blue thing on the floor. Uh, "'The bath mat,' she said, surprised. "'And what is written on it?' "'Why, bath mat of course of course i said and i handed her the wedding ring end of section seven